Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Billy Wilder Theater. I'm Claudia Bester, Director of Public Programs here at the Hammer Museum, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to tonight's Hammer Conversation with Matthew O'Coin and Megan Amram. I want to give a special thank you and shout out to the L.A. Opera, which is my home away from the Hammer, and to my wonderful colleagues there, Chris Kosh and Stacey Brightman. Before we begin, I'd like to invite you all to come back to the Hammer Museum uh, to see our new exhibitions of artwork by Alan Rupersberg, Jamila Sabour, and Shalabala Self. Admission to our museum galleries is always free. We also have hundreds of great free public programs coming up, including poetry, music, literary readings, political discussions, and meditation workshops, among others. For the last week of March, we have programming all week called Her Dream Deferred, a week on the status of black women in collaboration with Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw and the Say Her Name movement. So there's lots going on here at the Hammer, and we'd love to have you back. Now, on to tonight's program. Composer Matthew O'Coin is one of the most exciting new faces in classical music, and as an opera fan, I was thrilled when the LA Opera selected him as their first ever artist in residence. He's here in LA for three years, conducting, composing, and soon, in February 2020, he'll debut his newest opera, Eurydice, at the LA Opera, and from there, it'll travel to the Metropolitan Opera in New York. I was lucky enough to see Matthew O'Coin conduct the Philip Glass Opera Agnaten in 2016 at the LA Opera, and it was absolutely glorious. It will remain imprinted on my brain forever. I will never forget that. It was incredible. Um, so the first thing you'll notice about O'Coin is that he's very young, like under 30 young. Um, in that short life, he's been incredibly prolific as a composer of operas and of instrumental music and as a conductor and as a writer. And if that isn't enough, he's also an accomplished concert pianist who's performed all over the world and also accompanied some of the most famous opera stars in recital. He received the MacArthur Genius Award last year. And in addition to his artist residency here at the LA Opera, he's also the co-artistic director of the American Modern Opera Company. The new opera, Eurydice, is based on Sarah Rule's play of the same name, which is an entirely new take on the Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, focusing on Eurydice's experiences in the underworld. In conjunction with that opera's debut, the city of Los Angeles will have an opportunity to enjoy a citywide Eurydice festival, which will include um, several programs here at the Hammer Museum, including a Samuel Beckett play called Quad, and poetry, dance, and film interpretations of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth. O'Coin's two previous operas, Crossing, about Walt Whitman, and Second Nature, a dystopian fairy tale of Earth a hundred years from now, have been performed all over North America, including productions at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, the Lyric Opera of Chicago, and the Canadian Opera Company. At LA Opera, he's conducted productions of his own opera, Crossing, Verdi's Rigoletto, and as I mentioned, Akhenaten. He's also appeared as a guest conductor with the Santa Fe Opera, the San Diego Symphony, the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, and the Rome Opera Orchestra, among others. O'Coin trained as a conducting apprentice at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and served as an assistant conductor at the Metropolitan Opera. Believe it or not, Matthew does have other interests outside of classical music. He was in a rock band in high school, and he was a jazz musician, I believe, in college. He played jazz piano. And he even has friends who are comedians and writers. And one of his good friends from college happens to be the brilliant comedy writer and performer Megan Amran. 
You'll know Amram from her writing work on The Simpsons and the NBC series The Good Place, as well as Transparent, Silicon Valley, and the final three seasons of the comedy Parks and Rec. This past year, she wrote, produced, directed, and starred in the short-form series An Emmy for Megan, for which she received two Emmy nominations. Um, her other past credits include writing for Adult Swim's Children's Hospital, Comedy Central's Kroll Show, the Academy Awards Show, the MTV Movie Awards, the Disney Channel, and contributing to Funny or Die and Comedy Central Celebrity Roasts. She's an extremely prolific writer and actually became super famous early on in her career via Twitter, where she has 1.2 million followers and seriously makes me laugh out loud every day. Um, her writing has appeared in The New Yorker, where she wrote the very funny and very prescient piece called Jared Kushner's Harvard Admissions Essay. Um, you have to read it. You'll just die laughing. Um, she's written many other hilarious essays for The New Yorker, and she also appears in McSweeney's, Vulture, Vice Magazine, and The All, among others. And her first book, Science for Her, was published in November 2015 by Simon & Schuster. And she also happens to be a classical violinist. Go figure. So tonight we get to eavesdrop on what they're thinking behind the scenes as they create their brilliant works, and maybe even what connects comedy and music, like voice. Rhythm, timing, and well-placed silence. Please join me in welcoming Matthew O'Coin and Megan Amron. Hello. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming. If you all could just sit way at the back, that would make me a lot more comfortable. This is great because this feels like just a true casual conversation. Yeah, we were just going to catch up and, and we will. We haven't seen each other for a while, but are very good friends. And uh, I was like, this isn't going to be as fun for you because I just am going to be like, so Matt, how's it going? Like, how's your apartment? It's going to be all inside jokes. Yeah, <laughs> I I think that we should try to tailor this to also what seems most interesting to you find people who came. But I think my first thought hearing those bios read, my first question for Matt is really like, why haven't you done more? Sorry. Like, yeah, you're I'm, 28. Like, come on, get off your ass. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Thank you so much for apologizing to me. It is very fun. I'm glad that she uh, read your bio first, which is like a MacArthur genius and a, a fancy man. And then it's like, and Megan made a fake web series to fake her way into the Emmys. And uh, it's really, it gives you a real uh, idea of the two types of paths you can take in your life. Well, I do want, I actually do want to ask you though about your, your long history with um playing the violin or as, as you <laughs> call it, the, the chin guitar. The chin guitar. It's, I, I'm also glad that this, I've managed to just like force this into my bio. Um, Cause I do play the violin. I took like 20 years of violin lessons and. You start and, to sound good after 22, I think. That is definitely true. Cause like, I'm as good as you should be for like your mom paying for 20 years of violin lessons or whatever, but it's bad. I'm definitely bad at violin. Violin is an instrument. I don't know if any of you have children. Don't let them play the violin because it doesn't sound good until you're, yeah, like 22 years into it. Piano at least. Right. It's good. Like you might not be good, but you, you know, if, if it's built yeah, right. It's a, it's a f instrument that you know, you either play the right notes or not. I'm going to tell you about music. Please. This is actually a real. I'm here to learn. 
A real question. So how many different instruments do you play? I really just play the piano. I used to oh. play mm -hmm. the clarinet and percussion, but I but not really. Wow, you only Never play one instrument. Yeah, one instrument. Um, did when did you start playing piano? Uh, I think I was six or so. Just but like you know banging. Um, did you ever want to learn a different instrument? Yeah, you know I, I always kind of envied um, chin guitar players like yourself because <laughs> yes. there's a certain there's a certain f you know flow to it. Yeah, there's a there's a the the the, the oh, way yeah, that you should see me. It's it's yeah. really just a, a part of your body. You know, it's an extension of mm. your body. It's just so soulful. And I just didn't think that I had the kind of you know dancerly grace that like that, I, I'm, that you and all violinists have. I um. So the chin guitar, also to explain this, <laughs> the reason why I yeah, how do you play the chin that, guitar? Um, one of the things that makes me very embarrassed to play in front of people, and I I still play quite frequently, and I for myself, and I like it a lot, is that I like can't not make the worst faces, partially because I like smash my face onto the violin, which I think you're supposed to be a little chiller about it. But so I write, currently I write for a show called The Good Place, and there was a episode last year that required a violinist, like a busker on the street, and I did not uh, volunteer myself to be the violinist, but our costume designer, who's a very lovely woman, was like, oh, I think Mangan plays the violin, and... I was like, no, stop, don't, I don't want to do this. And uh, my boss who runs the show was like, oh yeah, you can just be the violinist, which is kind of my nightmare because when you're shooting a TV show, there's like 40 people watching you because it's all the crew and you have to do it over and over again. And the whole time I was just hoping I w wasn't smashing my face into the violin. And I did make the cut of the episode and it is me playing and I am making a horrible face. So... But everybody does. Yeah. And they and they have giant bruises on their on their necks if you if you're doing it right. I so. I watch a lot of like female violinists on YouTube and stuff and I'm like they are so elegant. <laughs> How do you do that? Um do you make beautiful faces when you conduct? Well, the good thing Great is segue, I huh? <laughs> get to have my back to the audience right. so that only the only the orchestra uh has to endure the like contortions and Right. No, it's pretty I mean you, you, the conductor should not be making noise. That's one of the rules. You know, you wave, you wave gently or, or, you know, or, or more forcefully, but you shouldn't make noise. And my, my issue is that I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm an intense breather. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not as bad as some who tend to like spew spittle into the first couple desks of the, of the instrument. Can you guys even hear what we're saying over his loud breathing into the <laughs> microphone? <laughs> this is the splash section, which is why you should be sitting in the, yeah. the last few, few rows. So that's really the risk with, with conducting, but you know, the audience doesn't have to suffer it. Have you ever dropped the baton? Yep. No, oh. not, not just drop. It's sort of you know, laser like. Oh my God, Matt. Goes straight into the. What did yeah. you do? You, well, the, the secret, and it's embarrassing, is that you actually don't need a baton. So you can just keep conducting with your hands, which sort of does, you know, prompt the question why <laughs> why you had it That's in the first a great place. Qu do so. you know what the it's history is? It's one of, of the this? mysteries of, well, the, the history of it is that, well, this is, this is an actual great tragicomic music history lesson, is that the, supposedly the first conductor, Jean Baptiste Lully, was conducting with a giant pole, just pounding the time out on the ground, um, which is the first. What year are we talking? Six, seven, early 1700s, probably. The early 70s. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, and uh, so he's, he's pounding the time on the floor and he missed and he hit his foot and he got gangrene and died. Oh, I'm not being alive not any time, but now was horrible. It was horrible. You just got, you died from a baton injury. I do try Progress. to remind myself that. Yeah. That like as horrible as things are now that we have like antibiotics. Yeah. My gangrene goes away real fast. Yes. Just con- I, oh, Matt is constantly gangrenous. <laughs> You've known me for so long. Yeah. That's his thing. <laughs> Do you, uh, have, have you heard any other horror stories of other conductors? Oh man. Yeah. I yeah. just want to know if someone's died. Yeah. Actually th- there's a specific moment in the opera Tristan and Isolde where yeah. multiple, at least two conductors have had heart attacks. Two in the at same, the same time. Probably the same moment. And actually, this is a this is a serious risk. And I think it actually is because it's the end of this really ecstatic, um, you know, love music that has yep. been going on yes. for like 18 minutes. And then it changes quickly. And I, I do feel I haven't conducted that whole piece, just bits of it. But I feel like emerging from that is a little bit like, you know... Um, a diver getting the bends so that if you, if you don't negotiate it right, you might actually die. That's amazing. And yeah. I think that you should announce right now, officially, you're going to be conducting that. Op- I'm going to sure. keep trying to get Matt to sign on to things <laughs> officially during this talk. Um, we were just talking about this backstage to segue a little bit. I was asking why you didn't go into like pop music composing sort of jokingly. And you were saying that you actually were in a band. Yeah, I, I, I was. It almost became the path of my life. Uh, in high school, a rock band is a, is a, it's a real sort of collaborative, fun team spirit, whereas the, the classical music world is very hierarchical and it's kind of a, you know, more of an assembly line where people are more specialized. And so, yeah, I miss it. It, it. it sort of fell apart eventually because not everybody was willing to take the plunge. So it's, that's the lost other path. What, I mean, why didn't you follow your, your, your chin guitar prowess all the way. I, its- I, again, I'd say definitely below average here of a violin <laughs> player, but I did, I really miss, so Matt and I met in college cause uh, we both sort of like, I was very into musical theater and also did a little bit of opera and have always loved music and singing, especially more than like anything and deeply miss it being a comedy writer. And so now I'm just trying to like, secret myself into being able to sing more, which has been very fun. Um, Do you think classical music is funny? I, my actual taste when I like go home from, so I've been a comedy writer for many years now. And like the shows that I like writing on the most. Megan is very ancient. She's been doing this for for many years. Yes. (laughs) The shows that I like writing on the most are ones with like a lot of jokes in them. And there's a lot of different types of comedies, but like I grew up, idolizing the Simpsons. Like that was the show I wanted to write for the most, but the shows that I watch now for fun are like the darkest, saddest things. Uh, so like the leftovers is like my favorite show. It's so good. If you want to be like very sad. So classical music, I really love when it is just so dark and depressing. And like that tends to be my favorite type of thing, but I, I wanted to ask you more because you obviously know at least a little bit more than I do about classical music. That's a joke. Um, who you think are like the funniest composers? <laughs> oh, that's a hard one, actually. 
Um, you can say yourself. Matt is very funny. But, you know, the, all the funniest ones don't know that they're funny. That's awesome. You know, so I might be the funniest, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. I, I've already brought up Wagner. No, Matt is extremely problem, funny. And when I like text with you, I'll be like, well, Matt's funny and like a genius composer, whereas I'm just one of those things. But like it. I, I'm not actually funny. You're like actually funny. But Is it some, fun to talk about whether or not you're funny? It's probably not that funny. Yeah. But I think the funniest composers are the ones that think they're the most serious composers. Yeah. So ever. who are we talking about? So we're talking about Phil Wagner. Phil Oh, yeah. Wagner's my favorite comedian. Wagner and... and <laughs> no, it's like... The, That's like the most pretentious thing you could possibly ever. say. <laughs> and I've, you know, I was just listening to, for some reason, Bruckner, who's a guy who kind of worshipped Wagner. Yeah. And like, you know, on, on his knees. And I think he kept, I want to say he kept his mother's like skull, may have been ashes, but I think it was skull in like a shrine. So goth. In his house. <laughs> super goth, super, super poker faced, but like really funny when you step back from it. Yeah. It does seem like the self-seriousness is probably what makes you the funniest. That's why it's like comedy writers are o always trying to like out self deprecate each other because I think their fear is that they become like someone who doesn't know that they're funny for the wrong reasons. Um, so yeah, my job is mostly just all day, every day, you trying to bully yourself before someone else can. That's like psychologically healthy, right? Totally. But you are yeah. just like digging this hole deeper and deeper, but that's yeah. like productive, right? Because yes. it's like your source material. Yes, it's very productive. <laughs> it's like all comedy writers are so sad all the time, but they just like love making joyless jokes. Well, <laughs> we are happy all the time. That's great. It, even though our stuff is totally dark and depressing. Like maybe so that's I how, just how it works. get a MacArthur Genius Grant and transition into your career. No. <laughs> no. If you were not a composer what or conductor, like what do you think you would have gone into? What, the completely non-music related. I feel like I'd be pretty like useless to society. Otherwise, I don't, I don't know. That's how I feel too. Right. What, what would you About do? you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I just assume I'm kidding. I feel like I keep saying I'm kidding because we're in a museum and it feels very <laughs> formal. Um, I really loved party planning and like I planned my prom junior year of high school. That's why they asked me to come do this tonight because they had heard my prom was great. You see these flowers. And, and it, it uh, the theme was Midnight Masquerade and I hand painted a bunch of masks and it was gorgeous and I felt very fulfilled doing it and I was like maybe I should just become like a like a very high level Hollywood party planner for like the Gwyneth Paltrow's of the world or something. Like I feel like you could just grift a lot of money from them and you it would be fun like Kylie Jenner threw like a bajillion dollar party for her baby. And I was like, I could have done that. So <laughs> that that's one. I'm also, but like, again, it's like music is also a great passion of mine. And I do kind of wish I had right after college, I was very into musical theater in college and I wrote a bunch of musicals when I was in college. And I thought I was going to like move to New York and try to hustle and become a musical theater writer. Um, which is still sort of like my long-term dream. Um, this is just a stepping stone. They, they sound the very Simpsons silly is just a stepping that. stone. Um, no, I was like, I want to write something. And I decided, I thought I was going to move to New York and just like try to become a theater writer. And then I decided one day that the reason I wasn't moving to LA was because I was scared of driving. I just like had this epiphany 
like a month before I was going to move to New York. And I was like, I think that's dumb. And I should just go to LA, even though it, it freaks me out. And then I'm very glad that I moved here because it's, I have no idea your guys's background or anything, but if anyone wants to be a television or a film writer, it's like, this is the only place to live. Even a few years ago, there were more shows in New York, but there's not really anymore. The good thing is like all my friends are just moving here who lived in other cities. I actually think that is something that keeps people from living here is just sheer like terror. Oh, I'd also, driving is, I like driving because you get to like sing in your car and stuff. I've almost passed out so many times. It's specifically singing along to Candide. So we can (laughs) tie this all together. There's just been a couple times I've really been given it my all and almost passed out. And I was like, if I hurt someone else because I passed out trying to sing a song, that would be horrible. To be fair, people do do that on the New York subways also. That's Even though it's amazing. not private. It is. When you see someone singing to themselves in New York, it's like, I was like, yeah, this city's great. Yes. Yeah, compartmentalized. <laughs> um, my car does have a huge gash down the side that has been there for like six years. And From you singing Candide? It's, you know, it's, you got to just focus on one thing and it's either driving or singing Candide. So, um, but I never got it fixed. It was, it's been in like three hit and runs, like not big ones, but just people have like hit my car and left. I was like, I don't, I don't care. Like in a way you have to be prepared. I think like everyone talks about the traffic here and stuff. And I was like, people don't talk about the fact that it's just bumper cars all the time. Yeah. They're your battle wounds. It's my battle wounds. So that's my thesis is if you're cool with someone just hitting your car and leaving and then having a dumb car, then move to LA. <laughs> could, it, it's just bumper cars, I think would actually be way less intimidating for a lot of people. Cause like, who doesn't like bumper cars? Yeah. Yeah. That's a thing that people pay to do. So you live, you, you're sort of like, you go all over all the time. Yeah, do I'm you a have a favorite city to live in? I think I feel the most at home still in New York because like, I feel like I'm, I can live below the, the hum of crazy, like the threshold of, right. uh, you know, you can sort of exist underneath it, which is nice. Here, uh, you don't actually see people all that much. So you feel a little bit more exposed when you're out in like the sunlight. But I, but this is like, this is definitely feels like an artistic home now yes. through, you know, through LA Opera. Do you think, so you write opera here, which opera I've heard is a fancy thing. Yeah, it's real and, fancy. And just in common parlance. And LA is not, I, I think that LA has an unfair a stereotype of being like a vapid place. And I mean that sincerely because like it has amazing art and culture and things to visit all the time. I also feel kind of dumb because I used to live in Westwood when I first moved here. I thought it was West Hollywood. I didn't know what LA was. So I was like, Westwood, that's a place, right? Um, it's just short for West Hollywood. Yeah, it's West of Hollywood. Um, but I never went to the Hammer and then I was coming in here and I was like, Oh, I used to walk by here all the time. But I go to like a lot of arts stuff, especially live performances in L.A. Do you think that L.A. is a good city for art and especially opera? I mean, clearly you have to say it's good for opera. but (laughs) (laughs) No, it's true, though. It's a pretty recent development that there is a full opera company here. And I think there's there's sort of an interesting origin story, which has to do, 
and there are people in the room who could correct me if this is wrong, but it actually has to do with the Olympics in the early 1980s um, that the fact that LA, I'm talking to a crowd that probably knows this already, but the, the fact that but I the, don't. the city could pull off like hosting those Olympics and, and, and sort of operate uh, like a operate exactly became an operator get it. of a city. People felt like, well, we could really sustain this. And then the, the company That's was born. Amazing. So the company is actually quite young. Like it's a hundred years younger than New York's equivalent. I had no idea. And so there's, there's not like giant baggage of like, well, you know, the Vanderbilts did it this way. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so that's cool. And also I think LA has a super long tradition of people running away from somewhere else to be free here Mm -hmm. um, in all different ways, like politically, like such amazing, like immigrant communities here, but also there are tons of emigre artists who like, you know, Schoenberg and, and, and all these people who, you know, around World War II ended up in LA and we're like, well, this is so much nicer than, you know, North Poland. And I'm going to like do my, you know, I'm going to write my music here instead. So, and I think that's continued to be like, if you want to be in the middle of like a cauldron of like musical energy, you should like go to some European capital and like, you know, but if you want to have like space and, and, and be around other like weirdos who are doing interesting things, this is I'm going to go to Warsaw to write my best tweets. I'm just going to like settle into a beautiful apartment. Yeah. I mean, if dark, depressing things (laughs) inspire you, then. I totally romanticize the idea of like being a real writer who like. Lives in a garret. Yeah. Lives in a garret or like is in Paris drinking like two cups of coffee at once or whatever. (laughs) It's like, but really I just sit at the computer and like think of a dumb pun and then I tweet it to whoever cares. Actually, I, I do have a, a question about one of those, about one of those um, dumb puns. Um, not really a pun in this case, but you've been, you've been tweeting today was the day Donald Trump finally became yes. president every day for yes. two years at this point, yeah, at I least two so. years. Maybe you can't like divulge future plans and also maybe like America will have collapsed by this time. But do you have plans for if slash when Donald Trump is ever unprecedented? The thing that I, I would say it mostly is like self-care for me to tweet, and if, it. to tweet it. And if other people see it and think it's funny, that's great. But a lot of people tweet at me and are like, please stop doing this. <laughs> this is not funny. And I'm like, it's not for you. It's for me. <laughs> like, t- because my brain cracked. <laughs> and But I do on purpose. I started tweeting it because I was like, it means something new every day. You got to give it to the fellow. He really keeps it interesting. And uh, no matter how it ends, whether it's good or bad or like the world doesn't exist anymore, I was like, I feel like the tweet is still going to have the resonance I'm looking for. This really is like, it makes it sound way fancier than it is. I really just tweet the same thing every day. But I, I have to say, I like, I don't think it's just funny. Like it's sort of traumatic actually the times when yes, I see it yes, because it's sort you. of like re like it's like you sort That's of. That's what a lot of people are like, please stop doing this. Cause right. Cause it, it just it jolts like you back to the first time. time. And I'm it's like, just, I know. <laughs> I'm not trying to hurt anyone with my political commentary. Well, it's you're really hurting just us me anyway. Being sad. <laughs> Ideally, what happens is like he does something very stupid, and that's when I do it. But 
there's been some very horrible days that I'm like, well, the rules that I invented are the rules. So I got to <laughs> do it anyway. I really just get very obsessed with bits that never end. That's really mostly what my comedy is based on. Do you have any other bits that never end? I do. I uh, post on Instagram like a normal person, but every Thursday for Throwback Thursday, I've been posting the same photo for over six years. <laughs> and it it just like, I'm like, if it, obviously I'm a a bit of a obsessive person, but I was like, if it, if, if something happens and I can't do it, or it would be really inappropriate, of course, that's okay. But for now I've done it every single week for six years. So, um, I started doing it just cause I was like, eh, I'll do the, eh, I'll do this for like a month. It'll be funny. And then I just never stopped. Um, and again, very similar reaction from the outside public, which is like some people being like, this is hilarious. Keep going. And a lot of people being like, this is so dumb. Please stop. <laughs> but there is like, I feel, I forget where I heard this. It was actually some legendary comedy writer saying that like jokes, like they're funny and then they stop being funny and then you keep going and they eventually sort of transcend themselves and become funny This is funny what again. I hope is happening. Yeah. And based on the feedback I'm receiving, I'm not sure it is. But, but just give it six more years. We just have to keep going. Yes. I will say I will stop tweeting the Donald Trump thing after he's not in the presidency. Well, I won't do it forever. In case anyone <laughs> needed further incentive, that's... Yeah. Um, oh, speaking of... of all of the things we're speaking of, uh, I always sort of thought that like the Simpsons was just like a mysterious sacred object, like yeah. Easter Island statues. Yeah. But it turns out that people like make it and still are making yeah. it. And you're now one of those people. Yeah. It's and your, your first episode is like airing. My first episode of the Simpsons is airing on Sunday. Um, which is, yes, thank you. Louder. No, <laughs> thank you very much. It, uh, like truly, I don't even have like funny things to say about it when I talk about it because it like is such a surreal thing. But I grew up in Portland, Oregon, which is where Matt Groening, who created the Simpsons is from. And a lot of characters are named after like street signs there. And I was like obsessed with it as a kid and watched every single episode and like knew them all by heart. And when I was 15, I was not like a funny kid, but I was very interested in TV and writing and sort of just like obsessively watched it until I could figure out how to do it. And when I was 15, I wrote a Simpsons episode in like a, a sticky on my computer or something. And I think it is somewhere on like a floppy disk. And I told the people at the Simpsons, I was like, if I can find this, we need to just animate it without editing. What I mean, it's horrible. Like from the things I can remember about it, it's not up to par, but I became a comedy. I like everything in my life was sort of, cause I was like, I think the Simpsons writers did that. Or I like moved here and was like, did not, it was not my dream at the time because I was like, Oh, the Simpsons isn't going to be on when I'm like old enough. And uh, at the place that I could write professionally. And then luckily for me, it's in its like 31st season on TV um, or 30th, I think. Um, and I got my job there in a very, a way that makes me very embarrassed, but I think that it, like the universe all worked out where I uh, casually knew one of the executive producers who's a writer just like 
through other writers as a friend. And we were on a podcast together called Script Notes, which is a writing podcast. And I was just talking with him and I was, I was like, I don't think I've ever told you this, but I'm like obsessed with The Simpsons and it's so amazing that you've written there for so long. And then I was like, do you guys work there all year? And I was asking that like, cause it's kind of a, a unique thing that the, that a TV show writes all year round. Cause usually shows are on, you know, six month schedules or whatever. And he thought that I was asking for a job and reacted like, oh yeah, hmm, maybe that, maybe that could work. And I was horrified because I would never ask for a job, even though you probably could just waltz up to someone and be like, hire me. I would never do that. But Some then do. he, but then it happened anyway. And I was like, okay, well it worked. So clearly I was driven into this magical place. Is there um, any chance that like Springfield is in Oregon somewhere? You would have a special perspective on that. Uh, it it definitely is like not a specified place, and I I I think like some people are some fans are always like so excited for it to be like like because of this geography it's definitely here and I was like I don't I want it to be the joke which is that it's everywhere, um, but uh, yeah I so I work there like half of my year. And then I work at the good place. Um, the other half ish. And I was like, yeah, I guess like I fulfilled my childhood dream, which like not many people get to say. I feel like the good place is kind of a rare case of a comedy that allows you to tap into some of your darker or more philosophical or just generally weirder impulses. Is it like, is that how it originated? Is it like, let's create this space to do all the weirdest (laughs) So The Good Place, which we're writing the fourth season now, it's on NBC and it's also like on Netflix. Um, It is a show about the afterlife, but also about ethics and like, I would say very heady uh, topics for a like NBC comedy show, excuse me. Um, A lot of us worked together. I worked with Mike Schur, who created the show on Parks and Rec, which he also created. And then with a lot of the other writers, on Parks and Rec, um, which was like a very sweet, optimistic show. I think a lot of people find it very comforting because it's like about goodness and friendship. But then like it, it was 10 years later in 2016 when The Good Place was starting and Trump was happening and we were all like, oh my God, this is not the show we want to make now. So the good place I think is totally a reaction to like a lot of the like much more existential feelings that a lot of the writers have, but I love it. Like today I'm at the good place right now. So I was at work today and we just like spent a long time talking about like not even related to an episode, but just like talking about how you get out of like a solipsistic crisis of uh, thinking you're the only one who exists in the world. And I was like, this is fun in a comedy writer's room <laughs> that we're just like arguing with each other about who's the only person that the universe exists. And it's just, it, it is like very stimulating. And the people there are very like good, smart people, which is very exciting to work with. I remember being really shocked that a pretty obscure, relatively recent book of philosophy uh, called what we owe to each other, yes. right? 
uh, appears in the show because this book was on like a college syllabus that my of course that my roommate took and it was the book was actually a running joke in our room because the cover oh mysteriously is just like these weirdly shaped jugs and so oh it was God, like what so we owe yeah. to each other apparently is like jugs yeah was the joke if there's one us. thing i i have gleaned from philosophy it's jugs. Gotta have jugs. <laughs> um, that's amazing because what we owe to each other actually like factors heavily into it's like a running theme of the good place. And if anything, it's like the theme of the whole show is like that idea of like what do you owe to other people in your life? Um, so please tell your college roommate I'll, that I'll tell him to watch the good place. Yeah. Uh, no, we also have had guest philosophers come in who are like consultants on our show, basically. So like last week, uh, we just had this really smart guy named Todd May who teaches at Clemson come in and lecture us for like eight hours. And we're all such nerds that we were like, oh, yay, it's lecture day. I like miss school so much. And I was like, this is the closest I'm going to get as a comedy writer is having a philosophy lecture for eight hours. I feel like some some other fields do that. Like, you know, I feel like finance people have like, you know, ayahuasca experts come and, you know, talk to them. About, oh, yeah. Well, that's the that's, evil version the of evil version. us. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, a finance person doing hallucinatory drugs. No, it's pretty evil. That's really the evil. evil. <laughs> um, do you this is now just occurring to me, but it's like you uh, my job is working usually with like 12, let's say other people all the time. Like and I. I like writing by myself. So it's almost like pushing me out of my comfort zone to be working with other people so much. Do you have a preference? You work by yourself a lot, I imagine. Yeah, it's kind of extremes. Like when I'm composing, I'm totally alone. And if I'm performing as a conductor, then it's like this, actually it's kind of like a twisted social experiment. Yeah. You know, working with 80 other people in this coordinated way. Um, I definitely feel most at home writing alone. And actually even the idea of like drafting a paragraph with another person makes me like break out in cold sweats. Like I really can't fathom the way that you guys work. Um, it's, it's like, but, but I guess if everyone's good, that helps, but I just have so many memories of like, okay, you know, you're going to complete this assignment with so-and-so and it's like, you can't connect, you know, it, it, it's, and usually if, and if it were like a, a math project, I would be the one bringing everybody yeah. down. So, you know, it's, it's, it's oh, no. it goes both ways. Um, but I yeah, said, yeah, before I knew how, how you were going to finish that sentence, I knew I, wasn't I was just agreeing trying with to you. catch you up. Yeah. There. <laughs> um, but it is weird in, you know, in making specifically an opera since that's the, the, the project that's on the burner right now. Uh, it's like a super collaborative, I mean, there are so many stages, like there's a score which has the basic musical information, but then that needs to be translated into like a set and a production. And uh, there's a massive cast and, you know, designers and directors and everything. But it actually is crazy how much is left to the composer. Like I say this, like wondering even if it's healthy, <laughs> because, um, you know, even when I talk to people who work as film composers, people who work creating music, um, in closer to the field that you work in, there are always other people in the room. Yeah. It's always like, it's gotta be 37 seconds, not 39 seconds, you know? And, and it's, it's being fit into a bigger picture from the get go. Um, it's weird that I sort of have to like make the structure. And then if it doesn't work, like a lot of people are going to have problems. <laughs> 
it, the, the funny thing about like being collaborative in a comedy writer room is it's, I think I thought there'd be more writing being a writer. A lot of what you're doing is like trying to out joke each other in conversation, which, um, is definitely an acquired skill. Like it makes me, like you're saying, it's like, you're also working on something that in the end, a ton of people are putting in so much work on, whether it's, you know, like set designers or directors or whatever, and little jokes that you made flippantly, not thinking of anything. Suddenly there's a costume designer being like, so did you really want a chicken costume? Because like, that's going to take three days or whatever. Um, but I, I don't know if you feel like this. I, when I am not in a writer's room for let's say more than two days, I suddenly forget how to talk to like another human being, even just socially. I feel that way right now. Where am I? Like what's happening? We're doing great. I need to be constantly practicing the art of like communicating with other people or else I turn into like an alien. That's really fascinating. So that's like actually what comedy writers rooms are for yeah They're just I to gather all these people really and like, like weird antisocial people to like oil the machinery of their social skills this um, city would literally grind to a halt if everybody oh, working as a writer no good. forgot how to talk a lot of uh tv shows are on like let's say they work for nine months and they get like three months off on hiatus like a school system or whatever and uh, when I would not work during the hiatuses, I'd come back like at the end of my summer break, basically, and just be like, so what are you, what are you doing? Just not know how to like ask someone about their life. Um, so I just want to say you're doing great, even Thank though you, you work in a solitary environment, you seem very normal. And now that's really all I needed to hear. Thank you for being here. The highest here, praise I can give anybody. Yeah. Should we maybe open the floor? Yeah, I feel like we want to include all of you uh, in, in in this. Oh, yeah. are, are the lights changing? No, that maybe that's my imagination. Yeah, uh, you're, oh, you're being weird now. I take back what I said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, does anyone have like we can take questions or even just like talk about other things? Yeah. I went to Megan's thing at ArcLight. And it was the best oh thing I'd, best thing I seen in my life. And I saw, oh my God. I saw Krakatoa East of Java there in '69, and that was better than that movie. So funny. Well, thank a, you for coming to so both wonderful. those events. Like back to the I was, question was, why don't you guys collaborate on something amazingly awesome? I mean, definitely. I I feel like I can say that it's in our future. With we're both very busy, but Matt and I have truly talked about this and we really would love to make that happen. There's like a crazy dream idea that would just take such crazy effort yeah. that it's like maybe decades from It's my from fault. Now. I'm lazy. Matt's not lazy. I just... Life is hopefully Now this long. is going to make me be like, yeah, I need to do that. Okay. You'll be the first on the list when it happens. The, He's not a plant, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hologram. <laughs> um, but I made this web series last year called an Emmy for Megan, which was literally because I saw in the Emmy rules. I don't have an Emmy. I'd love one. That's just the bottom line. Um, I saw in the rules that there was a new ish category called short form comedy series, which is just a web series. And there are like no rules to it. And I was like, Oh my God, I definitely can just like game the system. So I made a web series with truly like very little effort. And the whole series is just me being like, I just want trophy. Please just vote for me. And it was nominated for two Emmys. 
And it became just like a big, I hope, hopefully it's actually entertaining. I wanted it to be funny, but it's became a big bit of performance art. So I rented out a theater at the Arclight Hollywood, which is like my favorite movie theater. And you can just rent it out. That's what I've learned from a lot of things. If you decide to pay someone, they'll just let you do whatever you want. So I rented out a theater and held a screen, like a premiere. But the funniest thing is that that screening was the same day that The Meg, like an actual movie, had its real premiere at the Arclight. So people kept coming up to my table, which said an Emmy for Megan, <laughs> and being like, this is The Meg, right? And I, one of the producers on my series was like, just tell people it's the Meg. We need more people to come in. And I think there were two people that accidentally went to my web series screening and then left like five minutes into it being like, there's no shark. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> um, how has your relationship with Darcy changed after? Thank you so much Megan. for asking. Well, after the this murder? is really hard to talk about. Darcy, one of my dear friends, well, she used to be, one of my friends who, uh, she is a very great actress who's on The Good Place and she plays a character named Janet. She's also in my web series and at the end of my web series, she does kill me and uh, it really caused a strain in our relationship. Um, but we are filming season two very soon and I don't want to give away too much, but Darcy and I, uh, I've requested that she be in it so we can patch up our relationship. So we'll see. <laughs> so earlier you mentioned that you find Wagner to be the most funny composer, one of the most funniest composers. And knowing that you are both musicians, um, what really makes it really funny? And are there really comic operas that, you know, that are funny in different ways? Um, and how you might find writing comic opera to be any different? Or have you written any comic operas? Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I want to stress that Wagner didn't think he was funny. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there are rare times when it's really good that it's not funny, but the rest of the time it's really funny. Comedy, this is, we should have talked about this, comedy in opera. Opera in comedy would not get us very far, but comedy in opera is really hard. Um, I think that usually when people laugh at operas, it is unintentional on the part of the, the performers or else it's this like horrific, like I think of it as just the opera laugh, uh -huh. which is like, this, I think it's like a deep human instinct of like, ah, they they want me to laugh. Like they, they're tell they're telegraphing that it's funny, and so I don't I can't even do it because it just makes me so sad. But it's <laughs> this is and and most comic operas only you know uh, prompt that response. It's it's pretty tough. Um, I think there's a really incredible uh, composer named Gerald Barry who is alive right now. Uh, he's Irish and he is funny in all the right ways. He wrote an opera of uh, the importance of being earnest where he cut out most of the text but kept all the references to food <laughs> so that everybody is just like in this manic state of like devouring cucumber sandwiches. And also Lady Bracknell is a bass. And so she's just like got the deep, the deepest resonant voice. Um, and you know, there's a there's a fantastic moment when you know, a character is trying to hit on another character, but he, he keeps smashing plates 
in between every word that he sings. So he'll sing a word and, the, and 42 plates have to get smashed in every, so things like that. I think when you go like that far in that direction, like it can actually be funny, but you have to be like pretty insane about it. That sounds great though. I want to go see that. It's really good. When I follow the super titles in opera, it's always like, what are they saying? They keep saying the same thing again and again and again. So sometimes I just give it up. You know, I read the synopsis and then I just listen. But I'm just curious because you're also a writer, Matt. Um, yes, I mean, you wrote, written poetry and other kinds of things, not just music. So when you come up with an idea for an opera, so like this one that you're going to do for LA Opera is a classic story and mythology. Do you work with the writer to do the libretto? Um, how do you? Yeah, good, good question. Uh, I think clearly we need writer's rooms um, to like keep it a little bit snappier. Um, I've written my own texts in the past, but I, I'm not in a hurry to do it again because it's a really like pulverizing experience. Um, for this new piece, this also relates to the comedy question, actually. I'm working with the playwright Sarah Rule. And the, the, the opera is called Eurydice, but it's not like set in ancient Greece. Like it's very much Sarah processing the story of, of Orpheus and Eurydice as a, a sort of a way of processing her own life. And it's very much set in America in the 21st century. And it is funny. Like I noticed two things when I read her play. I was like, oh, one, it has this like amazing, like Alice in Wonderland sense of humor and like sense of the surreal to it. And the other thing I noticed was that it's not that wordy, which meant that we wouldn't have to like cut 80% of the text the way you do when you adapt like Shakespeare. In this case, I hope that you'll find this particular piece is like in American English that cats and dogs can understand, as Marianne Moore said, uh, and that it's like that it also has moments of, of humor. There are times when you want to repeat something for musical reasons and you just need to kind of chew on the same line of poetry for 10 minutes. But I get it. It's pretty annoying when that when that happens. You both mentioned on something that that. I'm interested in, and that's the notion of, and this is really for both of you. You mentioned on the notion of time and as creators, your creative people, does it bother you when somebody comes like a director or maybe the head writer comes in and has to cut some of the material that you have written? Does that get into you? Does that, does that annoy you? I mean, just, I, I think that that's a great question. I think one of the most wonderful things about being a TV writer is if you have any preciousness about your own work, it like goes out the window because for a million different reasons, your stuff gets cut and changed all the time. So it might just be that someone else had a better joke. It might be that there's just not room for it or a director doesn't understand it or whatever it is. I personally have always loved the collaborative aspect and I don't think I was necessarily like super tied to my own. I never wanted to be the best person in the room. I would rather on my own work that other people make it better. Like the point of a TV show is that you're a team and no one owns any part of it. And like in the best case scenario, which like the good place is like this, we are all so collaborative that it just ends up being better than any one of us could have done 
by ourselves. That being said, there's tons of writers who are like, they want to be auteurs and they want it to be their own singular vision. And sometimes those people are amazing and they become directors and they direct their own work. And my thought is like, we're power to you. If you know what you want, just go do it. But there's also people who like should maybe not be thinking that way. And I think they all need to like hang out in a writer's room and be like taught not to be too obsessed with their own work. I think there's actually a, a kind of hidden like force that, that uh, dictates the difference between these two processes, which is that Megan's work uh, is very much like in, in in an amazing way in the like the public consciousness um and also that means that there are like a different kind of stakes like commercially for a lot of people and what's what's weird and i think there are like big pros and cons to this the fact i think the reason that weirdos like me get like go off and write something and you know you know especially with instrumental music nobody edits it Mm-hmm. Operas, you do do a workshop. You hear from all different voices. You hear from the director, the librettist. It's it's a it is a collaborative process in the end. With like a new piece for orchestra, not even your own publisher edits you. I mean, they edit it, it, it for like graphical things, but they don't say you should really cut those four bars because they ain't working. <laughs> um, and I think the only reason that that's the is the case is that there are like no stakes. You know, if it's an instrumental piece, you're probably programmed on the first half and then there's a Beethoven symphony on the second half and that piece is going to sell all the tickets. So who cares about you? (laughs) So I think that this like strange, like solitary way of working has a lot to do with the fact that I exist in like a garret room in the attic of our culture (laughs) as opposed to like the living room. And I, I think that like cool, weird things can happen as a result of that. I, because really to answer your question, often nobody does tell me to cut anything. There's times when I really wish they would. <laughs> There's times when I'm like, well, come on. Anybody with an outside view would have seen that that was a stupid thing I'll to do. I'll just start doing that yeah, if you please, want. Yeah, please, God. <laughs> I, Ew, so, you yeah. picked a C flat? <laughs> Ew. <laughs> it's not even a real note. <laughs> it is a real note, but it's a pretty rare note. Sorry, go on. You mentioned the fact that in the second act of Eurydice, you cut 20 minutes out of it. And I got the sense that it was you who did the cut. Nobody came in and told you to, to do the cut. But supposing somebody came in and said to them, you know, this opera's going up to three hours. Maybe, Matthew, you, you ought to cut 20 minutes out of it. Yeah, that was a, that was a visceral... <laughs> what you're referencing was an event last night where we talked about Eurydice. We didn't, like, perform the opera and say, those 20 minutes didn't go very well. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, that was a group shared reaction when we did a workshop of it. Um, and I was very much on board. Um, it's hard to imagine some like outside force unilaterally making those kinds of changes, but it used to be the case. I think like, okay, just to prove the point about the difference between like being more in the main current of a culture or not, when operas were more in the main current, for example, like Italy in the 19th century, when it was like arena rock, was what operas were, they would be cut to shreds all the time. Like you couldn't, you didn't have any control over what version of your piece was being done in a different city. You wouldn't even, the the title would be changed, you know, things would be rewritten, things would be totally. So it's, 
I think it sort of boils down to this question of, do you want to like, are, you know, is it like this collective whittling down or not? Which I find super interesting. I sometimes miss it. I do just one more thing. Like I have so much respect for the fact that you just like know without outside feedback, I guess what you think is good. I know that sounds kind of simplistic, Wait, but, but you like you do so much work on your own too, right? I do a lot of and work. And you wouldn't own- necessarily want someone else like t- tweeting something under your name, for example. Right. You guys can all tweet under my name. I don't care. <laughs> um, the, uh, but there's a funny thing in comedy where it's like, you know, it was good because someone laughed at it. I feel yeah. like the, the, I'm so like concrete sometimes that I'm like, for laugh equals good. Like it just not a very artistic way of thinking about it. Like a very mathematical way of thinking about it. I was like in Causing classical music, you just have to be for, like, for. yeah. <laughs> if someone dies conducting your opera, it was good. It's really powerful. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question. Um, I read somewhere, Matthew, that you said human languages are, are music, not that they're like music, but that they actually are a form of music. And I was wondering if you could expound on that a little bit. They're music and they're also other things. I think the majority of how we communicate is not really the concrete meanings of the words. It's all about inflection and pitch. And I feel like everyone immediately pays attention to like, what's his tone of voice (laughs) telling us right now? The rhythm of a language is for me like the key to, to what it is. And even like American English is a different language from British English in this, in this regard. Like it's, it's just, it, it's, um, and you can tell from the sound, you can tell from the, like what causes you to pause. I, I'm pausing and, and stumbling over my words in a super American way right now. So, <laughs> and I also think that musical signs are like very close to being a language, um, but they don't signify things outside of the sounds, which is like the one crucial difference. So I think of words as like these containers for music. You know, they're like these these shells, these like shapes, and music is the uh, is the life force. <laughs> Me- Megan, I have this idea that the dings on your car come about because you're busy going back and forth between The Simpsons. Oh, I got to get to the writers' room on the Mike <laughs> Schur show, and I better sing to myself yeah. so I won't get so nervous. I'm wondering how you do both of these shows. Did the, did they say, I well, we can't it. work tomorrow because Megan's got her other job? I'm I, I'm gonna start using that as the uh, origin story for my Wolverine scratch down the side of my car. I so um the good place. So I I don't switch during the week. I work at the good place from let's say January to like August or July. I think so January to July, and then I immediately start going to The Simpsons, which I'm very fortunate to be able to do. It's not like a normal. TV writing schedule because usually you can't find a show that exactly lines up with another thing. But The Simpsons writes all year round and they have like no concept of time there because they've all been writing there for like 20 plus years. So they, I have this amazing deal sort of where they're just like, yeah, Megan, whenever you're free, you can just come work here, which like truly is insane. But the flip side of that is that I, um, haven't seen Matt in a very long time or most of my other friends because I keep just driving back and forth between my two jobs. So you guys are my new friends because I haven't seen anyone else Actually, <laughs> in a I, long time. I, I forgot to ask a Simpsons question though because if the process has got to be different, right? With characters it's that have been established for so long. Like yes. what, what even happens when you like submit a script? 
Um, well, the other thing I was very nervous about when I started writing against the Simpsons is I was like, I've watched almost every episode, but I still was like, I'm not going to remember what they've done. And my boss there was just like, yeah, it's okay. Just like think, of, yeah, we don't remember exactly what we've done either. Um, so the soothing thing is you do not have to have 30 years of episodes like encyclopedically in your head. I did once turn in, a, I've written three episodes, but they take so long to animate. I wrote this one that's about to air like two years ago. I think I wrote a joke that I was like, where have I heard that? I, sometimes you'll write a joke that you realize you kind of took from someone else. And I was like, I don't think I wrote that. Where did I hear that? And I was like, oh, that's a Simpsons joke. <laughs> so... <laughs> A perfect, so it's a fair game, perfect show to steal from. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, for Matthew, um, I was too, was one of those people who was knocked out by your Akhenaten that you did a couple of years ago. And I'm wondering what the perils of conducting Philip Glass are, because it feels to a lay person like you could really crash and burn. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes did actually. <laughs> no, it's, it's uh, conducting Philip Glass is super hard because um, the music is incredibly pure. And the materials are very simple. You know, it's mostly it's mostly these super familiar like triads. You know, do 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 do. You know, ad infinitum. That's actually incredibly difficult to sustain because any variance in how you're playing it is really noticeable. And also, you have to create the illusion that it's easy, but actually, like you're all getting tendonitis as you play it. It's really tricky. So it was about like getting into this trance state. Um, and I had a good teacher in this regard in our lead, our, our principal singer, um, Anthony Roth Costanzo, who sang Akhenaten. And for anyone who did not see this production, Anthony had to shave all of the hair off of his body and for part of the show be naked you know, in front of the 3,500 people at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion and sing this very difficult music. And Anthony took it so seriously. Um, he went on this regimen where he basically like only ate fruit and did this like exercise thing where you strap like electrical things to your chest and shock yourself. And it's like, you're able to like uh, basically uh, do the equivalent of like a 90 minute workout in 10 minutes just by like suffering <laughs> electric shocks. Um, he did this in order to look good enough to stand naked in front of a bunch of Angelenos. Um, he said to me, he said when he did it in London, he wasn't worried cause you know, uh, <laughs> But he he really had like organized his life around like entering this trance state to sing Philip Glass, so I was able to kind of go along for the for the ride. Um, okay, my question is going to be about Twitter. So, yeah, so uh, Megan, you're like a basically like full time like TV show writer, but then you're also very prolific on Twitter. Meanwhile, like a lot of other people I follow when they're unemployed, they tweet a lot, but then when they're like on a show, they're, they kind of like fall off. So how do you be creative, like professionally, and then also kind of just like fun and creative? This is a great question because I am happy to reveal that The Good Place is just like on their phones, like five hours a day. <laughs> we, um, it, we've managed to like get a good balance, but like a lot of us are obsessed with Twitter, which I feel like I started Twitter like 10 years ago, tweeting dumb jokes, mostly as practice to like, I knew I wanted to move out here and be a comedy writer. And I was like, oh, I'll just like tweet practice every day to 
trained myself to write jokes and had no idea it would turn into this sort of like performance device, basically. But then, like, you know, a few years ago, it also turned into a way for everyone to start like screaming at each other about politics or screaming with each other, I should say. Now, I, I guess we're just all going to be on Twitter forever. But oh, God, no, that was a that was a horrible way to like <laughs> sum up this talk. I don't know. You can everyone can get off Twitter whenever they want. I still enjoy it. Like, that's really the thing is like a lot of people I know are very stressed out by it, whether it's the constant influx of like news or just like trying to think of jokes. And to me, it is like a great privilege that I have this big audience that I can just like I, I really have fun doing it. And read basically every single response that people have. And I am like so excited that people want to engage in it. So for me, it's still positive. But if I get like doxxed or something, I'm just going to stop doing it. It is one of those things that it's hard now to think back to like, how did all these things, like how did comedy writers like find the right people like even 25 years ago or whatever? It's changed so radically. I, among uh, many lucky things that I can count. I, I feel very lucky that I decided to start or that I was the right age to start comedy writing, like right as social media was starting. And I mean like right when it was starting, because I think like 2011 and 12 was sort of when comedy on Twitter started becoming like a big thing. And that was right when I had moved here. And um, yeah, it just like, I never would have foreseen it mattering so much in my career, but that's really like how I got my first jobs was by tweeting. So <laughs> I'm going to keep doing it. Just like grandpa. Yeah. Um, maybe time for one or two questions yeah. if people have got them. I, I'm wondering how you feel about uh, music inside comedy, like in a sitcom or a sketch show when there's a musical number. I've always gotten the sense that the writers really love putting those on, even if they're not like the funniest part of the episode. <laughs> really good question. That's a great question. And I'm also very excited to hear your perspective you go first, about please. this. <laughs> I, I'm like a huge musical theater fan, like obsessive. And I have worked on some shows, like The Simpsons, for instance, like, Tons of the writers there are like really into musical theater and you can see in the show like there's parody songs and then references to musicals and it's all very much from a place of like we all love to discuss it. The Good Place and Parks and Rec specifically, I am mercilessly teased in the writer's room by for my love of musical theater because no one there likes it and I, everyone there just loves baseball, which it's like, what? You like baseball, a thing that's the same every time? There's so many musicals. There's only one type of baseball. Um, but I think that something that I love so much about uh, musical episodes of shows or comedy musical theater is like how in the best scenario, like those things add to each other. Like to me a funny song or like, I love the lonely Island, like a, a group that I think has like mastered musical comedy. It's like, it is funny because it's a good song and because it's funny. Um, and it creates this, like, it's greater than the sum of the whole. Um, so I'm very pro music and comedy 
and my stupid coworkers aren't. That's the summary. <laughs> this is really not my field, but because I actually I have to admit that shamefully I like don't have the musical theater gene really. Like, yeah. and this is like a thing that has nearly separated me from my family, including my dad, who's a theater critic and a total Broadway. But it's like a it's like either you're sometimes you're either an opera person or a Broadway yeah. person, and I just don't have it. So I tend to like cringe when those moments arise in in shows. But actually, I think The Simpsons is an exception. Like they sometimes have done it, it super well. It is like it's very. I think it has to be very motivated by the show. Like right. to me, the good if the Good Place had a musical episode, it wouldn't make any sense. There's bit people online. I think there's crossover of like the fandoms for the Good Place and musical theater, and I've seen people be like you guys need to make a musical episode. And I was like, but it would be bad because it would not be motivated by the show. But something like The Simpsons, tonally, it makes sense. So I don't think any show can just like have a musical episode, but if it makes sense. One more. Can I ask? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Before we go, can you tell us a little bit about what is in store for Eurydice in February 2020? Yeah, just a bit about the about the piece. Yeah, and, sure. the and maybe the festival too. Yeah, so as as Claudia mentioned, uh, the the new opera premieres here in LA February first of next year, um, and it's it's the story that we all know, but from the other end of the telescope. Orpheus is still the greatest musician in the world, but Eurydice is kind of a skewed portrait of Sarah, and and so she's a, a more like bookish, introverted person in this in this play and instead of being bitten by a snake on her wedding day she instead uh steps out of her wedding party because she hates loud parties to get a drink of water and there's a creepy middle-aged man there who says uh hey i have a letter for you from your father um which is strange because her father's been dead for a while but she follows the man because she thinks well my dad would try to get in touch with me on, on my wedding day. So she follows him to his, uh, you know, Trump Tower-esque 65th floor penthouse apartment. And he's the Lord of the Underworld. So he does actually have the letter from from her father, but he also kills her. Um, and so she she ends up in, in the underworld and becomes an amnesiac uh, and passes through the river of forgetfulness and her identity is obliterated. But she meets her dead father. And so part of the opera is really her like figuring out who she is again with her dad in the in the underworld um and sarah specifically says that the underworld should resemble like an alice in wonderland-esque space um in that it's not like it's not a christian like hell and it's also not like a classical realm um it's just kind of this this place where you've lo you've lost your identity the way you like lose your keys and you just don't really know what's happening uh and 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 existence is kind of it's been like unlocked and it's spilling everywhere. So it's, it's a really weird, fruitful, like place to live in writing a piece. And it's, it feels kind of magical. Um, and also, yeah, so we're doing this festival leading up to the, the premiere, which will include all different other musical versions of the story. There are so many great ones from like recent living composers and also things from 400 years ago. Um, so that'll be all around the city, uh, in the weeks and months leading up to the premiere. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Yeah. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera.
If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.